Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When the door by the grandfather clock closed, <coughs> and we were alone, the president began by saying, I want to talk about Mike Flynn. Flynn had resigned the previous day. The president began by saying Flynn hadn't done anything wrong in speaking with the Russians, but he had to let him go because he had misled the vice president. He added that he had other concerns about Flynn, which he did not then specify. What happened? What happened? Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the door by the grandfather clock edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. It makes it sound and like. Would it's you like, like to hear a scary story? It makes it sound <laughs> like Father Comey's like, bedtime story. Like stories. reading Goodnight Moon. Or <laughs> I'm just gonna say, Jim Comey, if he wanted to, like, now that he is no longer the FBI director, has like a great future in um, melodrama or young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. Who would play Guy him can in spin a movie? Yarn. Guy can tell a story. Who would play him in the movie version, though? Who would play him? Who mm-hmm. is that tall? In yeah, Hollywood? who's tall enough yeah. to play him? I don't know. Do we have actors that are that tall? Might have to play him. We give him stilts. He is a grandfather clock. He's as tall. That's why he kept fixating on the grandfather clock. <laughs> you like me are six feet tall. You know when when inches. when John Oliver uh, used my account of Comey trying to blend in with the drapes, he pointed out that when you're six foot eight, you don't try to blend in with the drapes. You tape uh, uh, <laughs> leaves onto yourself and you pretend to be a tree. That's how you, so, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he should have taped a clock face on his head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He would have blended really I do like that in this time of like a, a real stress and crisis for the nation, we've all united around making jokes about how tall Jim Comey is. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's, it's we needed this. Thing. It's the yeah. things that unite us in insecurity. Right, exactly. right. Uh, in case you missed it, that was a passage from <clears throat> what are we what should be calling this? The testimony, my testimony by James Comey, <laughs> available in stores now or on the Senate Intelligence Committee website. Can I just say, by the way, the last document that was like, you know, an official congressional document that was, you know, this sought after was uh, the Star Report, and right. you know, which was actually like publishers published editions of it and sort of Insta books. Uh, and this is seven pages. Yeah. And that was hundreds of pages. And so. And this I, is much more gripping reading. Yeah. It's I think, I, yeah. I think it's, it's actually a riveting story. And it's, um, and. Note to Ken Starr. Re- less is more. Brevity <laughs> is the soul of wit. Yeah. Uh, and that is my friend, Ben Wittis. I'm here with Susan Hennessy and Tamara Kaufman Wittis. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. I just also want to say, I think it was very smart for whomever, it was Comey or the Senate Intelligence Committee, to release this seven pages of testimony now before tomorrow, because I seriously think our heads would explode trying to unpack this much information in a two-hour session. Like, I don't even know if you would get to it. It just feels like it, it was, this is just too much to cover in a single hearing. So, um, Well, plus the senators will be able to ask much more effective questions, right. having this narrative out there in advance. 
everyone watching the hearing will know what senators are referring to when right. they ask questions. And so, wow, it might be more productive. It might be. And it gives us a chance to talk about it before it's a week old, which Although is great. It is interesting that they publicly released it, um, you know, because sometimes uh, current officials will send their testimony um, sure. you know, to the Hill ahead of time in order to have these sort of directed questions. Yeah. Um, but this is clearly sort of just the attempt to, to get it all out there and, you know, let the press chew on it, let the SSCI chew on it. And I think it's, I think it's a, it, it gives a common basis for the conversation right. tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And, and it allows, uh, it allows Comey not to spend the time of whatever opening t- statement time he gets trying to pack in as much of this as he can. It allows the committee members to know what the factual basis that they're dealing with in incorporate in, in uh, the questions, and it allows the the press to actually digest material and kind of know what they're going to be dealing with. Okay, it's so we're going to in- get into it. Let's let me talk about the other topics first. Uh, we're going to get into that plus the other two days of news on Trump and Russia and Comey. Um, also, in case you missed it, there's a new crisis in the Persian Gulf. Did President Trump start it? Tomorrow's going to answer. We'll that find out. And just when you thought it was safe to go back to the polls, there are new revelations about Russia targeting the election system. So we'll get to that too. But and let's return to the question of Jim Comey's testimony. And we have a new FBI director nominee, and we have a, a, a new NSA leaker who's been arrested. And what well, else? That goes in the third topic, but yes. <laughs> See, we have to parcel all this out. We're going to okay, okay. ourselves. She's right. holding our hand. He's walking us through. All right, children. I'm just I'm Gather feeling around. overwhelmed. <laughs> time you, for story time. Will you tell let's us come a back. story. Come back to me. Come okay. Story time. <laughs> let's 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 unpack uh, uh, the the pretty riveting read here of Jim Comey's testimony. I think let's say at the outset, I think there was probably not. I didn't count many surprises. Uh, in this, it raised a couple of questions, in particular one that I want to ask you guys about in a second that was a real eyebrow raiser for me, but may have just actually been the one inelegantly worded phrase in the testimony. Um, but not a huge number of re- amount of revelations in here, but let's get like quick first reactions to this, both as a scene setter for tomorrow, but also what we found in this. Ben, why don't you start? So, you know, Susan and I wrote this morning that before we saw any of this uh that we that the major significance of comey's testimony was going to be to give narrative coherence to uh, and detail uh of an important nature to a set of incidents that had you know very likely already been disclosed and i think this uh statement is a very good expression of that it's it's a it's a coherent uh account of his interactions with Trump over a period of three and a half months uh, that answer a lot of questions that the sort of scattered news stories uh, that present some of this material in sketch form raise. Uh, and so as such, it's very, very powerful, in my opinion, and very significant. But it's all of those things while adding a relatively modest, not zero, but relatively modest amount of new information to the table. Susan? Yeah, I mean, I look, it is like just the narrative itself is gripping. I was um, I was surprised by how candid he was, yeah. um, especially sort of in his uh, personal assessments. Um, and incredibly I, detailed. I mean, really taking you to the room with him. 
to try and I thought get you to empathize with him. But I think it really does show sort of how um the the how limited it was and sort of the nature of the testimony. It shows that he really he's not there as the former FBI director. He is there as a witness to something mm-hmm. who is explaining the, like his experience of what occurs. Um, in some ways, it's sort of a um it's really an indictment of kind of this like oh Jim Comey showboater like the idea that he releases it early. He's not he's not going to sit up there and and tell his tale while everyone looks at him like it's actually it's very sort of restrained to just kind of put it out there and and then answer questions oh i had um, the opposite reaction let me just say like this oh, was really? like you thought it was like a like oh a dramatic... my god like yeah like the day early release and it was like suddenly it was it, like the star wars trailer went up but, but it does reduce the drama of him <clears throat> sitting in the chair telling that's true the story. that's true yeah. Right, because I actually think this would have been this would be an uncomfortable story to, to actually have to verbalize and tell. And so I, I do I want to hear him just sit there and read it though. Sorry. It would. Right? <laughs> and when the audiobook comes out, he should narrate it himself. No, Shane fair. should narrate it because he'll do it so much better. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, tomorrow, what was your reaction? You know, I I think um all of that, all of what Susan said rings true to me. And I think there was a sort of minimalism about what's conveyed in the testimony um, that adds to its power. Uh, I also just noticed a couple of things about it as I was reading, just as a reader uh, and observer. One was his statement that, you know, on on discussing these interactions with the leadership of the FBI they all agreed that the attorney general was probably going to recuse himself on the Russia I was stuff. By that. And that yes. was just sort of a Two by the way. Yeah, a by the way yeah. mention. So it suggests that the FBI leadership knew something that was going to lead the attorney general to recuse himself. Um, and I, I can't but think that he put that in the testimony in order to provoke a question. Yes. So that really jumped out at me. More broadly, it was just the the crudeness of President Trump's efforts to engage him, both the positive, you know, effort to co-opt and the 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 requests. Yeah, Um, they were both just crude in language, crude in execution, crude in modality. Uh, And I, I mean, it's of a piece of with what we know about Trump's character. So it wasn't surprising. It was just so stark that even when he is alone in a room with another individual uh, in and no one else is watching and the camera lights are not on, he's still the same right. crude guy. And it makes me want to ask, like, in, in, in all sincerity, with no subtext, with no irony, <clears throat> I'd want to ask him, why did you think it was appropriate to speak this way to the FBI director about this subject? Like, honestly, why? I mean, there's there are definitely overtones of strong arming and kind of weird mafioso tactics to my read and the and the lingering over dinner and the silences. And I was going to invite your family, but then I just invited you, which is really super weird. But just putting all that aside, I would love to ask the president, like, did you think this was inappropriate? Because clearly the FBI director thought this was beyond inappropriate. And I hope a question he will address in testimony, which I thought he glaringly did not address in this memo, is at any point did you say to the president, Mr. President, what you are doing is inappropriate? Well, he certainly... I mean, he certainly... Did you say no? Right. Right? Did you ever say no? Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) He certainly raised it with the attorney general. 
right? He, but he only said, I don't want to be alone in a room with him. He didn't say okay, what it but, was about. You know, but as I was just suggesting, you know, it's not necessary for a victim of sexual assault to have, you know, to explicitly say, no, I do not want you to rip off my blouse. Right. I mean. <laughs> but in this case, it's entirely possible that the president of the United States has no clue that he is, that he's not just violating norms, that he's actually endangering himself by so, doing this. So, I, you know, one of, I, I think that's one of the most interesting questions that this raises, which is, does Trump have any sense of the magnitude of these improprieties as he's doing them? Or, uh, or is it really just a kind of ham-fisted, this is the way you do business, and it's also the way you sexually assault people, and it's also the way you run the executive branch, right? The most striking single passage in this to me is the last paragraph, second to last paragraph. The last paragraph is, that was the last time I spoke with President Trump. But the, dun, dun, dun. Right, the penultimate paragraph <laughs> so is, much drama. you know, the, the, is Comey tells the president that the White House counsel should contact the leadership of the Justice Department to make any request and that there shouldn't be direct contact. And Trump responds, he said he would do that and then added, because I have been very loyal to you, very loyal. We had that thing, you know. And Comey writes after it, I did not reply or ask him what he meant by that thing. What I, is the thing? I, Hashtag the what's the thing? What's the thing? But there are, you know, there are sort of atmospheric details in here that I do think um, demonstrate both that Trump understood the gravity and certainly that his inner circle understood the gravity. So I thought one of the things that was really interesting about the Oval Office meeting is, uh, you know, Comey says that, that Sessions sort of lingers and, and Trump has said, no, 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 I want to talk to Comey alone. Kushner lingers. He says, no, 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 you leave too. Writes Priebus sort of, you know, busts in halfway, you know, open the door. No, 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 he tells him to leave. That is all sort of indications of, you know, uh, you know, Comey talks about walking out by the grandfather clock and, and this big group of people, including the vice president, like sort of standing outside the door waiting. It, that's, I think there's a lot of sort of indications here that people understood and, and probably had counseled the president on uh, that he had these impulses, that they were really, really consequential, and they were afraid that sort of he, Trump being Trump, w that this moment was going to come. So I have a question for Ben and Susan, because as soon as the testimony was made available, uh, Jeffrey Tubin, noted legal expert, uh, tweeted, this is obstruction of justice. Um, and let's set aside for a moment the difference between uh, political judgment of the Congress in, you know, in impeachment over obstruction versus a criminal definition of obstruction. But what, what would make someone come to that conclusion so quickly based on what's in this testimony? And does that make sense to you? So I, without sort of getting into the, you know, some of the stuff that we developed on Lawfare in terms of can, does the statute really apply to this kind of investigation, all those sort of technical questions, for me, the sort of the killer sentence there is um, uh, after this meeting in the Oval Office, Comey writes, I had understood the president to be requesting that we drop any investigation of Flynn in connection with false statements about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December. Um, and that uh, clearly that sense was also shared by the senior leadership of the FBI because he says that he went 
went back, immediately wrote this memo, and that they collectively made a decision to not, I think the word he uses is infect the investigation. And so clearly there is a, a judgment by a group of very senior you know, f- officials that something untoward has occurred and they need to act to protect the investigation. Now, remember, at the time, this isn't public. Comey doesn't think he's going to get fired. This is not some sort of revenge thing. This is um, this is indication of whether or not we're sort of on the, the legal technicalities that these people were acting as though they thought Trump was trying to pressure them improperly, corruptly influence them to drop this investigation. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's a very... So first of all, the technical question of whether this constitutes an obstruction of justice under the various obstruction of justice statutes is immensely complicated. And the better argument is probably that it doesn't for a number of, for a number of really technical, boring reasons. That said, it is highly significant, as Susan points out, that the reaction of the FBI brass is to go back, scratch their heads and say, well, could we corroborate it if we had to? And that means they're thinking in the language of evidence, not in the, not in the language of, uh, you know, kind of routine administrative stuff. And so I, I think it's, uh, likely that you don't have a criminal case on the basis of this alone. The, the really interesting and hard question is if you add all of the things in this document to all of the subsequent events, like the firing, the boasting to the Russians, the boasting to Lester Holt, the con- confession to Lester Holt, uh, and, um, and the things that we don't yet know that Bob Mueller may develop, do you have a pattern of behavior that is cumulatively obstructive for purposes of any of the statutes, particularly after the grand jury is convened? Mm. And that's just a question that you need a lot more facts to answer. But we aren't really talking about that kind of standard. We're talking about whether or not it's obstruction for impeachment purposes, which is really just, you know, whatever does Congress, Congress think this is obstruction? So there, well, there is some user stand- standard. Okay, so there's actually a passage here that I want to ask you guys about on the subject of things that are jumping out to us. And it's something that we kind of have been agonizing with a little bit in the office. But going back to when the president on February 14th is sitting in the office, in the Oval Office with with Comey, and he returns to this topic of Flynn saying he's a good guy, he's been through a lot, and he repeated that Flynn hadn't done anything wrong in his calls with the Russians, but he had misled the vice president. So then Comey writes, the president returned briefly to the problem of leaks. I got then got up and left out the door by the grandfather clock, naturally, uh, making my way through the large group of people waiting there, including Mr. Priebus and the vice president. I immediately prepared an unclassified memo of the conversation about Flynn and discussed the matter with FBI senior leadership. I had understood the president to be requesting that we drop any investigation Investigation of Flynn in connection with false statements about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December. I don't think Jim Comey means to imply in written testimony that there is an FBI investigation into whether Mike Flynn gave false statements to the FBI, but the way that sentence is worded, you could infer that. I think he means in connection with false statements that 
Flynn gave to the vice president. I don't but then think why so. is that a subject of FBI so. investigation? I don't think so. I think he is. He's look. This is not classified. Um, this is not bare on the integrity of of an ongoing investigation. Um, you know, and and he's not saying it directly, but it's but it is relevant to explaining this testimony. I think he is saying that. Uh, that President Trump had the perception, at the very least, that there was an investigation into Flynn regarding false statements. There was some sort of scattered reporting about that possibility. False, right? Well, and Yates uh, had testified specifically that that he had been interviewed and that she had contacted McGahn following the interview about problems. So it's it's, uh, and I think the word, the key word in that sentence is any that we drop any investigation, not the investigation right. or not the ongoing investigation. But, you know, I interpreted it as a, as a request that we drop any investigation that may exist. How so does I that square, though, with the emphasis that Comey puts in his written testimony at the beginning of distinguishing that what they started out engaged in was a counterintelligence investigation and, you know, what we're talking about here is potential criminal investigation of Flynn. So I think there are I think there are two reasons he's he's uh, noting this and making this specific point. Um, one is the things he has refused to talk about were counterintelligence investigations. Right. This is far less sensitive. Um, you know, he said in his testimony that, you know, sometimes criminal investigations come out of counterintelligence investigations. Oftentimes it is, you know, these 1001 charges. I think that he is noting this in, in order to be really clear about squaring his version of events with that of Andrew McCabe, who under uh, oath says uh, before the Senate that he didn't think uh, that he hadn't perceived any efforts to impede the investigation, an, an investigation. He was talking about the Russia investigation generally and was uh, was clearly answering quite carefully there. And so I think that there was probably a deliberate choice that the FBI to talk about this stuff and think about these as two different things. And so I think he's being careful to, to just sort of um, anticipate that question mm-hmm. and spell it out. And you would expect that senators, perhaps particularly on the majority side tomorrow, might have an interest in conflating those two things and trying to point at apparent inconsistencies between McCabe's testimony and Comey's? I mean, a lot of people pointed to McCabe's testimony afterwards saying, see, look, he, he said that there were no uh, there were no investigations. And my understanding is that McCabe's testimony today clarifies that point quite explicitly, that his earlier testimony was really about the impact of the firing, not about whether there may have been any broader or earlier efforts uh, to uh, – affect the investigation. Can I also just make sort of a a broader observation about the use of this particular testimony? Uh, And that is for all of the officials that are currently serving and wondering, like, how do you preserve the integrity of your office in this, like, I don't know, horrible, bizarre administration? Take good notes. (laughs) Take good notes being one. But this is actually a pretty good illustration of like adhering to principles at every single turn is your only way through this. I just think like... And and at the end of the day, he still got fired. So it's not like they could look at his example and say, this is how I can get through this with my integrity attack. It's why he got fired. Right, right, right. right. But that's the point is that... 
if this is a good illustration of what it, what it takes, how much it takes to preserve the integrity of your agency and its mission in this environment, the answer is it takes self-sacrifice. It, it takes incredible um, spine of steel as illustrated in that dinner face-off where the president asks for loyalty and Comey simply stares at him until the president moves on to another conversational topic. Uh, it's hard to imagine doing that yourself. Mm -hmm. But then it requires going through all the steps Comey went through and getting fired at the end. All right. <clears throat> there is other news this week that we'll have to get to. Ah, um, come on, man. Nothing <laughs> else matters. Right? Uh, <clears throat> so there is a new crisis brewing in the Persian Gulf. Um, several countries, including Saudi Arabia, have severed diplomatic ties with Qatar. Um, and if that wasn't enough, then there was then a terrorist attack uh, at a government facility right tomorrow in Tehran this at morning. two different locations simultaneously. Two different locations. Uh, and it was both claimed by ISIS and the government in Tehran also put out a statement saying they blamed Saudi Arabia. Right, uh, because uh, in Iranian in the Iranian narrative, those are the same. Right, thing. So the same. I mean, things. I don't know, Tim. I feel like there's so many experts on dip on uh, Gulf state diplomatic relations <laughs> on Twitter this week. That like, I don't even know if you we just need to didn't cover know it. It's how just, many people they just specialize in the arcane <laughs> politics like magic. of Arab states in the Gulf. Let's, let's, do, let's do two things here. <laughs> One, summarize. You know neatly as i know you can like what the hell the cutter thing is about because i think a lot of people that just would they were struggling to say wait what wait this is a long running something but why is this happening now and second then get to which it naturally flows to is donald trump's you know self-avowed apparently role in precipitating this crisis sure well i look shane i think there's a really very simple explanation here <laughs> these people have been fighting each other for thousands, thousands of years, of years. <laughs> ancient tribal <laughs> hatreds yes it's all our, about as, ancient as, tribal hatreds and <laughs> and so really there's nothing we can do um in fact this this isn't about us <laughs> okay, now setting that aside, um, I, look, it's, it is kind of a mystifying um, set of events that that seemingly all of a sudden uh, within the Gulf Cooperation Council, the six country grouping in which the United States has invested so much on behalf of collective defense and security in the Middle East, you know, all of a sudden there's this major rift. Not only did they cut off diplomatic relations, but Saudi Arabia cut off land, sea, and air access to Qatar. Qatar imports 90% of its food. So it's like most a, it's of like it, an embargo. Almost, yeah, yeah, it is an embargo. And most of that food comes <clears throat> over the Saudi border by land. So actually, you know, it has severe um, tangible effects on people's day-to-day -day lives uh, very, very immediately. So it's a very high-pressure move by the Saudis and, uh, and the Emiratis. And what precipitated it? And this is the question. So I'm not going to claim to have an authoritative explanation. I will say that in 2014, the last time these guys got into a big scrap, there were a lot of cited reasons. There were a lot of explanations given for how it got resolved. And frankly, I, I'm not sure we ever got the full story. But here are the underlying divisions. Um, 
for the last 15 years, really, Qatar has um, played a pretty provocative role in Arab politics, uh, beginning actually with the creation of their Al Jazeera uh, pan-Arab satellite channel, which is now global and includes English language programming. Uh, They used that to kind of um, host dissenting voices from all around the region. And in the midst of the Arab Spring, it became a major platform for Muslim Brotherhood voices, which the Saudis and Emiratis and the Egyptians came to see as active hostility by Qatar against their own governments. Um, in addition to that, they are angry at the Qataris for financial support of extremist Islamist militias in Syria uh, and for Qatar's willingness to maintain an open dialogue with Iran, although, quite frankly, the Omanis and the Kuwaitis do that as much as the Qataris. So that, to me, seems less of an issue. And then finally, it was true in 2014, and it's true today as well. uh, A couple of the Gulf states accused the Qataris of hosting uh, within Qatar specific dissident figures from their countries. And so they're saying, if you're our brother, if you're a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council together with us, why are you hosting our political opponents in your country? That ain't right. But um, what about this like hacking and they put fake news on the thing? I'm just, I'm really overwhelmed with. So the, uh, look, the thing is like all of these um, ideological or political differences have been there for a long time. So why did this flare up right now? It seemed to have been sparked uh, by an alleged hack of the Qatar news agency that posted false statements attributed to the Qatari emir, uh, dissing the Saudis and saying nice things about the Israelis. Um, But in fact, it seems to have been provoked by something that happened a little earlier, which was uh, Qatar paid reportedly up to a billion dollars in ransom to parties in Iraq that had kidnapped some Qataris who were in Iraq hunting, if you want to believe that. Uh, And the money went to ISIS affiliates and to Iran-affiliated militias. And this infuriated the other Gulf states because they saw the Qataris as basically giving money to people who were their enemies. Um, And then the second precipitating event for the diplomatic rupture and the closing of borders was over the weekend when somebody, we don't yet know who, hacked into the email of the uh, United Arab Emirates ambassador here in Washington, Yusuf Al-Taiba, and published emails that showed him closely coordinating with a a particular Washington think tank on an event that was going to make the Gutteries look bad on terrorist financing. <laughs> um, and and so these two things apparently really infuriated the Saudi and Emirati governments and led them to spark the crisis. So, Do they have any sort of leverage in response? I mean, if they're, if they're cut off from 90% of their food supply, what now? Yeah, I look, I think at the end of the day, they're going to have to cave. Um, but all parties are going to want some degree of face saving because the Qataris do have resources that they can choose to use to lash out. They can't uh, forcibly reopen their borders, um, but they could use their money in other ways that oppose the interests of their neighbors. Uh, and they could continue to, to tighten their relationship with the Iranians, which would make the Saudis very nervous. I don't understand, though. The Qataris are like the richest people in the world. They have an airport. 
Why They don't have very many people. Why can't they fly in the food they need? So you're right that they don't have very many citizens. There are only about 600,000. But there are several million people living in Qatar uh, who need food. I know, <laughs> and but you know... The, we, and food is heavy to it's fly It's the Berlin in. airlift. It's been done. <laughs> right. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very impractical. And it's certainly not a long-term solution. The Doha so, airlift. Um, but luckily, President Trump has offered to mediate this dispute <laughs> Which is a really good thing because he seems to have stuck his foot into it and made it much worse just yesterday uh, by tweeting out a series of statements explicitly taking the Saudis' side in this argument and criticizing the countries for alleged terrorist financing. Today, however, he has called the Emir of Qatar to discuss the problem of state support for terrorism and to offer to host a meeting at the White House Didn't to Vladimir help the two Putin sides. Didn't Vladimir Putin also call the emir yesterday about the same subject? The the Saudi king. No, no, I think the TASS news agency reported that Putin also Oh, yes, called. Putin called the emir of Qatar yesterday <clears throat> to offer his support. That is true. I feel like this is like the threat, you know, whenever my sisters and I would fight whenever we were younger and my parents would say, like, either resolve it amongst yourselves or I'm going to resolve it for you. <laughs> but um, it, I mean, it's like too, too you figure it out or Trump's coming and you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> maybe I'm just being, maybe it's not to go like all info wars on this one for a second, but like that's just the world we live in. So go info wars, be Shane. The, most, the obvious explanation, but Russian hackers help precipitate a crisis, which Donald Trump was also looking to flare up to give Donald Trump the ability to come in and look like he's tough on terrorism and then try to play the mediator. I mean, this whole thing feels extraordinarily orchestrated. Like, the most realistic, rational explanation I've heard is the one you just said, which is that, you know, the the ransoms that the Qataris have been paying for years now for people, including their own people, to get them back and all of their falcons with them, uh, you know, got funneled to ISIS. I can get that. Otherwise, this is just like bizarrely irrational. Like, you know, somebody pissed somebody off. So you blockade the country? Like what? So you get I mean, and you have layers of arguments here. You have arguments between these royal families. Um, You know, this is a really Big reaction to that, right? Right. But then when these arguments flare up, the Iranians can take advantage. The Russians can take advantage. Trump, Trump, you know, intentionally or unintentionally now is setting himself up as a mediator and trying to take advantage. And it's it's actually a great illustration of something that's been happening in the Gulf since the Arab Spring, which is the more these guys scrap with each other, the more opportunities they create for those who have an interest in destabilizing the region to destabilize it further. And so as much as they all complain about Iran's nefarious activities, these family arguments just give the Iranians more opportunity and now giving the Russians opportunity as well. So the best thing for regional stability is rather than forcing one side to give in to the other, for them to just quit arguing and present a united front can't we all just get along Jeez, apparently. <laughs> i'm motto sure that's what donald trump is saying motto right of now. the gcc yeah all right um let's get on to our last topic here so the intercept this week published a, a fascinating document uh, uh purportedly from the national security agency showing that russian hackers had targeted two at least two mentioned in this report companies involved in voting machine technology and in voting tabulation. Um, so a previously undisclosed attempt by the Russians to not just propagate fake news and to hack into American political organizations and then use that information for influence operations, but apparently 
for some reasons, trying to get at the companies that actually run voting equipment and that are involved in that effort. Um, there, there's kind of three pieces of this story. One is the actual event itself. Two, um, the fact that now the person who allegedly gave this information to the Intercept was swiftly caught, uh, a woman with the winning name of Reality, Reality Winner. By the way, it took me like a day to figure out what the hell people were talking about when they said reality winner. I thought that was like, is that it her was like handle? like a reality show winner. Like, no, that's her name. Yeah, right. I know. I know. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. seemed like some kind of code name or I, something. I was, it was, took me a while. Uh, <laughs> like a porn star yeah, name. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> Reality has hit you right in the face, ma'am. Uh, and then a third piece of this story, which is interesting more from a journalistic standpoint, perhaps, but also a secrecy one, uh, which is that uh, apparently the way that the government was aided in actually catching her was that the intercept showed the document that Reality Winner gave to them to investigate, to the government, to get their comment on it, and they were able to tell from digital watermarkings on the document where it was printed and yeah, then can, find her. Can I just say that, you know, the Intercept people who make such a, a sort of public fetish of their OPSEC, yeah. uh, uh, that, you know, it is very hard to resist the schadenfreude of yeah. this moment, and I confess that... Uh, Susan and I have not always succeeded at that endeavor. Yeah. So it rises at up. We try our best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, just sort of repressing it. We've had <laughs> better angels. We've right. had a few moments of. <laughs> yeah. Sh- and Sh- just- Freud aside, though, I thought Bart Gelman did a very uh, thorough deconstruction of the OPSEC breakdown at the Intercept in a in a Twitter thread yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, and I think and I will also just say as a journalist who tries to practice good OPSEC, do not ever go out there and say you've got bulletproof OPSEC because eventually you're going to fuck up. So assume that you probably have fucked up several times and more is known about you than you would like. Um, but let's just quickly get to the, the, the basic news of it, which is how significant do you guys think it is to see this next sort of this other revelation of another dimension of the Russian campaign? And it, it, I specifically ask that question because the question of whether or not Russian hackers were able to penetrate the systems that tabulate and manage voting in the country loomed very large over this whole concern about Russian influence operations. There was no evidence that they did. There still isn't. But now there appears to be pretty concrete evidence that they were certainly trying to get at those companies for for some purpose. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's very much significant information that's in the document itself. Um, it's it's sort of showing the work behind the assessments that, you know, the intelligence community assessments and statements that uh, uh, ODNI and DHS had put out during uh, uh, during the actual election itself, right? This was reports about precisely this type of targeting was the impetus for the government actually to finally go on record and say, you know, yes, we saw this form these forms of targeting. None of it was the type that could have been used to sort of to change vote tabulations, um, uh, really to reassure people. You know, this adds a little bit of color. It demonstrates kind of a particular method one that's known, right? Sort of the ability to um, to compromise, to fish through uh, uh, two-factor authentication that uses uh, SMS. Um, so, so in terms of sort of a, a technical uh, information, it's not very much. Um, in terms of actually uh, sort of moving the Russia story forward or the hacking story forward, uh, you know, it, give, it gives a little bit more. But if you didn't buy the inte- the intelligence community already saying they knew. I'm not sure why this little piece of evidence changes your mind. Well, okay, so two points. Number one, I just have to show off that I know 
that SMS-based phishing to get through two-factor authentication is called smishing. Hey. I love that. But I think what what I really take away from this, Susan, is precisely your last point, that if you already believe the intelligence assessments, then this doesn't matter. But at the time that assessment, that public assessment was made, we all read it and said, okay, but there's not enough beef here to persuade people. And the the underlying rationale for the assessment wasn't there. And so what this document is doing is actually giving people what they've been hungry for ever since that public assessment was released. And and, you know, it is bringing the issue back to light and therefore putting pressure back on Congress and the administration to say, what are you doing to prevent this in the future, which is all good. But it's also a reminder that that Obama administration created public assessment that was so carefully done to avoid, you know, burning sources and methods and ongoing investigation, whatever, just wasn't enough to persuade people that there was a real problem. Yeah, so look, at, at the time of that report, I certainly share and shared and continue to share the view that they should have um, offered a lot more information. Um, but if they were going to offer a lot more information, it certainly wouldn't be in the form of this kind of slide with this level of specificity. So I view this as sort of all security loss. It, it does speak to something that troubles me a little bit more. And that's, you know, this woman is, is 25 years old. She was at the agency only for about 12 weeks. She decided to sort of steal this document and um, clearly didn't understand sort of the depth of, of protection. I worry that the, the sort of the, I don't know, canonization of, of Edward Snowden and uh, paired with, you know, sort of this, oh, you know, everybody hates Trump, but this is this is sort of in defense of the republic, that, that we really have created a situation in which we're, we're going to see I more of Idiots are going to try to be romantic heroes. No, and I think it's so right. Um, you know, people are you know, are going are going into government or going into contractors and they're going in intending to do this. And you think intending to do it? I suspect I would be surprised if there aren't some who are. This is a person who I don't know what her intent when she went in, but she was there for a very short period of time. And people are going to go in and they're going to ruin their lives. And, and, you know, it's a... Isn't it the job of the clearance process, though, to ferret those people out and not grant them clearances? It is certainly the job of the clearance process to do that, and it's not going to succeed all the time. And I, look, I, I mean, I think they've got a prosecutor. They've got to treat this very seriously. But I worry that there's going to be a bunch of these people, and and it's and it's going to be awful. This also, I mean, sort of the, the question of, of clearance screening as sort of preventing against the insider threat also gets into hugely sensitive questions. You know, people who are pointing out that on social media she criticized President Trump as you know, look, she never should have held a clearance. Well, no, people in the intelligence community still have First Amendment rights. You actually really don't want to create a situation in which the test of whether you get a security clearance is not having criticized particular political views or activities of the administration, sensitivities related to mental health screening. I mean, this is this is a really hard area to get it right. Um, I, I agree with Ben. I think we're going to see a lot more of this until people start talking about it with a, a much higher degree of responsibility. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, you have an object, I think, right? I have an object, uh, a new FBI director designate. <laughs> oh, God, that <laughs> happened, too. Yeah. Wait, wait. You mean we don't have an FBI director? 
Well, we have an acting FBI director. But this morning, the president tweeted, of course, he announced it by Twitter, that he was going to appoint a guy named Christopher Ray. A guy, was, this poor, this poor man relegated to an object lesson on <laughs> rational security. Some guy named Chris Ray, whatever. I mean, look, he's, he's, he's got a distinguished record. He ran the criminal division uh, once upon a time. Uh, he's been a white-collar criminal oh, defense lawyer. <laughs> uh, and... Um, he has been, shall we say, upstaged by events today <laughs> you know, uh, and thus you... relegated to a <laughs> rational security object. Former lesson. director's like, get out the hell away. If you have <laughs> to go beer. before Congress for confirmation, you're probably grateful to be upstaged, though. This is probably going to work to his advantage. I doubt that very much, actually. I, 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 I wonder think... if it will or won't. I mean, like, is it going to be harder to confirm him after Comey's testimony I, or less hard? I think it's going to be extremely hard to confirm anybody yeah. after this testimony. Yeah, he's going to go through the ringer. For um, sure. And and now you've objectified him, too, Ben. Really? The poor well, man. I'm sorry. What's his name again? Who? <laughs> Christopher, Christopher Ray, not, not to be confused with Christopher Wren, oh, I love who his built work. London. <laughs> it's really marvelous, ahead of his time. I actually uh, have another object lesson. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, I want to thank uh, all the shockingly many rational security listeners who have been sending us booze. <laughs> um, and it really is... Uh, actually astonishing the uh, volume and loveliness of uh We're very of this touched. yeah and, and some, a little drunk <laughs> <laughs> some of the, the some of the contributors are uh old and close <laughs> friends and uh some of them are random strangers uh who uh but we know, love you all <laughs> and we are so touched um uh and i also think it's time to uh say we we have enough booze at yeah. this. You're our going cup, to our kill us. Runneth over, yeah. Quite runneth over. Super great. But our so, hearts are warm. Yeah. So if, if we'll you, never, we won't. It's going to take us a long time to drink all this. If you are podcast going one late. of the uh, listeners who's still thinking about doing it, uh, my <laughs> suggestion is um, uh, buy uh, contribute some money instead uh, to one of the organizations that uh, does refugee relief or a. a security related charity of your choice um and uh you know we're 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 very touched you guys are 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 thinking of us and it's it's actually been very moving but the truth is we're running out of shelf space yeah. <laughs> and, and our livers stay awake. <laughs> only have so much well, yeah. alternatively yeah. buy a bottle for yourself because yeah. you're gonna need it <laughs> That's that's a good point, Shane. Uh, the pub the pubs are open, by the way, tomorrow for Comey Fest. Um, and starting at like nine thirty. Yeah, yeah, a b- bunch of DC that? pubs with with big Shaw's Tavern, not far from my house, is giving out kofefe shots every time the president tweets. I think that's or that's, something like that. <laughs> If we didn't have <laughs> not not like you've checked it out in detail or anything, no, I mean, I've heard about it. it's not like to, you're planning to work I heard, from look, there I heard tomorrow. It on the block. <laughs> <laughs> Just the kids I was hanging out with. Just the kids that was happening. I mean, I'm covering the hearing. I mean, I can cover it anywhere though through the magic of the internet. So yeah. Yeah. That's good. You know, it wasn't enough of a spectacle already. So I feel like this really adds the, uh, you know, the drama that was missing from the right. event. Well, I, I just appreciate this moment because it's it's bringing out into public, into the public light, the amount of day drinking that's going on in Washington Seriously. these days. Which we all knew was happening. <laughs> Uh, well, that... and the excuses we will use. Yeah, right. Uh, it's for posterity. It's for 
transparency uh and that brings us to the end of the podcast rational security is a production of spaghetti on the wall productions you can find our show archive at our website you can follow us on facebook you can follow us on twitter at retl security send us pictures of your cafe shots or whatever however you are celebrating that's a good thing however you're celebrating the hearing tomorrow it's like or your grandfather clocks it's national security super bowl basically yeah or your yeah. grandfather clocks send us a picture of this at retl security uh, that would be a great nice object lesson roundup next week of how you watch the hearings. And thanks to everybody who has been leaving us these lovely, fabulous reviews. Next yes, week on the show, you. we are going to have a ceremonial reading we of will some do of it. the more amusing rational security yeah, reviews. You guys are the best. Um, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced by and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music was performed this week by The Doors, by The Grandfather <laughs> Clock. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Shane. <laughs> American Ann. president, get yeah. away from me. That's right. <laughs> uh, Sophia Yam, big Doors fan, big Rational Security fan. We're a big fan of hers. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaffa-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Kofefe, everybody. everyone. Happy Kofefe Day. 